0: This is the podcast of the German Historical Institute London, a research centre dedicated to supporting and connecting students and scholars from Britain and Germany. The podcast series presents current research in British, German, and European history, as well as colonial and global history. For more information on the German Historical Institute London, future events, the GHIL Library, Studentships and more podcast episodes, please visit our website at ghil.ac.uk. In today's podcast episode, I'm talking to Jane Freeland and Maya Kaspari about their work on the GHIL's first online exhibition, Forms, Voices, Networks, Feminism, and the Media, The exhibition, curated by Maya Kaspari, was developed by the International Standing Working Group on Medialization and Empowerment, led by GHIL director Christina von Hodenberg and coordinated by Jane Freeland. Forms Voices Networks explores the intersections between the growth of mass media and women's rights movements in a transnational context during the 20th century. Centered on the histories of feminisms and the media in Britain, Germany and India, it draws attention to little-known or unheard voices and stories and draws connections between activists and the media across time and space. Jane, can you start us off by giving us some background information on the exhibition and the research project it is part of?
1: So the exhibition came about as a result of the International Standing Working Group in two Uh, Medialization and Emancipation, which was a three-year project hosted at the German Historical Institute here in London. And this project was really aimed at exploring the connections, the relationships, the contingencies between the rise and growth and spread of media forms, the mass media, for example, and the parallel emergence and spread of movements of feminism and women's emancipation. And this was primarily designed as an academic project with conferences across the three years, workshops, publications that were targeted at an academic audience. But it became very clear early on that a lot of the topics that we were looking at um, had contemporary resonances. So we were, this project started right after a lot of the Me Too revelations had come out in the media. So it was very clear that there were interesting and important questions to look at in relation between, you know, in the relationship between the media and women's rights and feminism. Towards the start of the project, we actually got some additional funding to do some of this public engagement work. And that's where the idea for an exhibition came from. And it was a very broad idea from the very beginning. It was aimed at being a traveling exhibition that would travel between London, Berlin, and Delhi, uh, which were the three um, sort of, you know, three major cities in the three countries that we were focusing on in the project. But aside from this focus, it was still a very broad and vague idea of what we wanted to do. So we weren't really sure what stories we wanted to look at, what um, items or images we wanted to feature. And that is where Maya Kaspari, our
0: curator extraordinaire, came in. (laughs) Maya, can you tell us a bit about how you started working on the project? So um, I started working
2: with the ISWG and the German Historical Institute London in November 2020, as Jane said, with the brief to curate an exhibition which, as Jane said, would um, engage the histories of feminism in the media in in a transnational context, specifically in Britain, Germany and India, which were the countries the project had focused on um, as well as exploring the kind of evolution of different media forms across the 20th century and how that those developments had intersected with the development of feminism or women's rights movements in a global context. Um, but more practically one of the first decisions we had to make when I started um, was to move the exhibition online because um, as everyone will remember November 2020 was still very much in the middle of the um, COVID pandemic and although the exhibition had initially been planned as, as a touring one um, it became clear that that really wouldn't be possible or at least we certainly couldn't be sure that it would be possible across the countries we wanted to work with. So yeah, one of the first things we had to do was sort of in a way quite radically reimagine where the <laughs> what the exhibition would look like, where it would be. And of course that brought with it a whole range of other decisions, sort of both conceptual and practical.
0: And Maya, can you tell us a little bit about how going digital affected the practical aspects of curating this exhibition?
2: Yeah, well, although, um, you know, as we've said, going digital wasn't initially the plan, in some ways it actually came to suit the exhibition and, and the concept quite well. Um, one of the things that was also kind of clear from the beginning was that we didn't want to try and present any kind of single or comprehensive narrative about feminism and the media um, ac- across these countries. Um both because (laughs) there simply isn't any single narrative. It's, you know, there are so many different stories and groups of stories of different groups and different campaigns and all kinds of things that were going on in different ways in different countries, Um, but also because, you know, building on the work of many feminist writers and theorists, we were aware that telling or trying to tell a kind of single linear narrative would likely erase or exclude a lot of the kind of complexity and and multiplicity of the materials we were trying to present so rather than presenting a single linear narrative we decided to present a kind of collection of of different stories from different moments where feminists had mobilized the media um to support their aims and in a way the digital suited that pretty well because rather than say having to move as you might do in a physical space from one panel or one exhibition section to another the digital sort of allowed audiences to kind of enter the site at different places or to kind of focus on the areas that was of most interest to them Um, and in our structure as well as offering a chance for them to move kind of through these main thematic headings that we had which were recognition, redefinition, reclamation, bit of a mouthful, remapping and regeneration which was the kind of cool way in which the exhibition was structured. We had introduced tags which you know for different countries and for different time periods and that meant that audiences could select as you do, a particular tag and kind of be presented with an alternative sort of collection of stories, which sort of maybe differed a bit from the core structure that we proposed. So the idea there was that people could sort of find their own way through the exhibition and sort of, in a way, create the history or histories of feminism in the media that they were most interested in, that it would be kind of in motion, if you like. And yeah, so the digital in that sense was an advantage.
1: Yeah, I think exactly as Maya said, questioning the you know, the linear narrative of feminism as moving from oppressed women in you know and advancing sort of progressively towards emancipation was a, definitely a narrative that we wanted to question with our exhibition. Um, As a lot of um, post-colonial and black feminist activists and scholars have shown, often these stories privilege certain voices over others and privilege in particular the histories of a white middle-class feminism at the expense of women of colour, women from colonised countries and indigenous feminists. And this was something really important that we wanted to question. And I think the, the digital space, as Maya said, not only enabled us to question these sort of progressive narratives, these linear narratives, but also the thematic focus um, allowed us to create connections across time, across geographical space, in ways that a um, chronological organization wouldn't necessarily allow us to do. And I think those themes are really important for getting at some of these connections and relationships between the media and feminism across different spaces and different times. Um, you know, one of the things that we also were faced with were the fact that across the 20th century, The countries that we're looking at weren't the same so what Germany is in at the start of the 20th century is not the same as Germany as it is today um, and the same as for India and for the UK for Britain so you know we also wanted to get at these different histories of the countries themselves
2: as as Jane said you know it was really important for us to try and find a way to present the histories and stories coming out of these contexts in a way that not only reflected the um, differences between them, but also reflected or engaged the different ways that they were affected by the 20th century history of colonial modernity. And so I suppose here is throughout, we were trying to find a way of presenting global feminist histories that was also in a sense feminist in form so we wanted the exhibition in itself to engage some of the ways in which the movements we were looking at and the writers and thinkers we were reading had themselves worked Um, and in that way we kind of therefore drew a lot on Feminist thinkers in in thinking through the structure of the exhibition one of the people that inspired the way that we chose to structure the exhibition was um, Lucy delapp who writes a recent book on global feminisms and there she proposes the figure of the mosaic as a way of trying to um, imagine and narrate the history of global feminisms. what she says is. Like mosaics, the view from afar and the close reading of feminism may give a very different picture. And like mosaics, feminist coalitions were built up from the bits and pieces available, other movements, committed individuals, actions and ideas. I suggest we not only look at the shards and fragments that make up a mosaic, but also at the gaps between the pieces. So interestingly, this concept of the mosaic, of course, both evokes the sort of contingent Grassroots nature of many of the feminist activist movements that she's discussing, and the way in which they built connections across borders, including national borders. Um, but it also describes the process of looking back over history from the present. So, as DeLap notes, looking at the view from afar and the view close up might give a very different picture. So, in a way, she's using this sort of mosaic-like nature of the movement she's describing and drawing that into the her own way of representing feminism, if that makes sense. So we were kind of interested in doing something similar. And we, we kind of built on this idea of a mosaic to, as I said earlier, think about presenting this very complex glow and uneven global history through a series of mosaic like tiles or multiple stories. And we kind of sought to evoke that both conceptually and even visually in the work that we did with the designers. Um, and as well as the lap, as Jane mentioned, there were a, a large number of other theorists and, and writers and thinkers and artists, including some of those that we showed in the exhibition, like Shiba Chachi um, for example, who whose work also sort of inspired us and informed, you know, some of the kind of conceptual framework for the exhibition, particularly around kind of concepts of unevenness, the sense of trying to draw attention to the partial nature of what we were able to present, um, and also inviting audiences to make connections, as Jane said, across times and spaces, but also to reflect critically on the tensions and frictions and sometimes, you know, even violence or, you know, real, really kind of difficult relationships that existed between different stories or different feminist groups at different moments. So we were very keen that the story we present would be not a kind of smooth narrative not a kind of narrative of progress or of celebratory one we wanted to reflect as you know many feminists have written the fact that feminism is especially feminism in the media is a kind of story of contestation and redefinition and it's something that's kind of ongoing and unsettled and sort of in the process of being made by feminists at different moments and different times.
0: And how did you go from these theoretical concepts um, and kind of put them together into the practical aspects of curating the exhibition? How did the stories come together? Or maybe also how did the stories find you in this process?
2: I really like the idea of um, stories finding you because I think that often is the way it works with research, or at least from, you know, my experience. Um, and yeah, I think yeah, it's important to say that Of course, when you know you always have all these theoretical ideas, but they're always only kind of played out or very much sort of intertwined with the kind of practical and the material realities of what's in front of you and what's possible. And in fact, although we're kind of talking about all the theory now, some of it sort of and we started with certain, you know, concepts and ideas, of course. Some of it also came out of reading the materials and the kind of stories that were found. Um, Yeah, I think I, well, it was a slightly daunting, (laughs) it was a slightly daunting project in some ways because it was so broad. And initially, (laughs) I suppose, as well as sort of, and it was made more complicated by the fact that it, it was in the pandemic, which meant that it was slightly harder or much harder at least for for quite a significant part of the beginning to you know actually visit archives um, or do any of the kind of things you might usually do when starting to do some research although I was at different points able to visit archives or to speak to curators or or archivists who had access or had knowledge of what was in the kind of particular libraries or contexts they were working in um, and also a lot of stuff has actually been, especially from things like the suffragette movement in Britain, a lot of stuff has been digitised. But also, of course, that adds as another, aside, as a side and aside, I'll just say that, of course, adds some other issues in terms of what gets prioritised and what doesn't, because you're, you know, what's available to you is the stuff that someone's decided already is important or important enough to be digitised. And, you know, we have to think a little bit about What kinds of, as we've been saying, we were trying to think about which voices or which stories were being um, privileged or not. And that, of course, takes place in light of like what what materials like practically accessible (laughs) or available. Um, So, yeah, we started sort of through lots of conversations, obviously with the ISWG, with reaching out to colleagues, some of whom... Um, had been part of sort of IS, the ISGWG project through their conferences and, and events, um, that you know includes, for example, Shiba Chachi and D. M. Withers, um, both of whom we spoke to, as well as um, other other colleagues. on the, it also meant reaching out to um, kind of other specialists or, or people who worked on similar areas and sort of asking them. Sometimes, you know, what what they thought was really important to include or if they'd found anything in their research that they thought would be, you know, really interesting to highlight Um, and then, you know, that plus our own research meant we sort of came up with a sort of vast list of possible stories and also a vast list of key moments you know as a way of trying to kind of map the landscape from which we were selecting and once we had this sort of huge overview as well as lots of possible stories then we really started to try to begin the process of narrowing things down Um, and while We decided quite early on that we wanted a thematic structure, not a purely chronological one. You know, that was still still tricky to kind of determine what those sort of theoretical um, containers, if you like, or headings are going to be um, and which stories are going to fit with them. So, yeah, that was really a process of lots of conversations. I was also... um, physically, like, wrote loads of different stories down on, like, note cards. This is very analogue of me. (laughs) I was trying to, like, collect them under different headings to sort of see what would work. And, yeah, it was quite a, like, kind of a bit of trial and – a process of trial and error, in a way. And trying to then return to – it was often helpful to sort of try and return to the sort of core aims of the project and particularly the focus on media – um as a way of thinking how can we kind of make this manageable but also you know coherent interesting even while remaining kind of open to the multiplicity that we wanted to evoke and yeah in terms of the stories some things came up from what other people had said some things as you said Kim sort of came, you know, I suppose found us through reading or through being in an archive when something just sort of jumps out, often something unexpected or um, surprise, you know, or, or funny or, and that was one of the nice things about it really, it was, it was a bit of some things you go in with a sort of idea of what you're looking for and sometimes you come out with something a little bit different.
1: I remember quite early on in the project, Maya sent me this ginormous uh, Google Doc where she had mapped out not only the history of feminisms in the three different countries, but also the social and political developments across the 20th century in the different countries. And it was just this huge document um, that mapped out these different histories and then of course there was a third layer which were developments in the media you know such as the development of cheap printing presses television radio all of these things also shaping the histories of of feminism in these countries and i think of, you know, as maya said part of what we needed to do were take all of these histories and these different stories and um, try and create some order to them and find the stories that resonated with the themes and the histories that we wanted to explore with the exhibition. And I think one of the things that really helped us was focusing on the media and really using that to center the stories that we wanted to tell. And I think very much the the themes that we selected spoke to um, to this focus on the media.
2: Yeah, as Jane said um, like early on the project, that's right, I, I kind of created this massive um, document. Um, really, because I suppose my feeling was that in order to make a selection, you have to sort of get a broad sense of the landscape that you're selecting from. Um, and so when confronted with these sort of very broad histories, I kind of wanted to to make sure that we we had that and that that would kind of allow us to think about areas in which we might um, explore more stories or kind of find f- focal points, if you like. And then, yeah, as Jane said, it was really a process of narrowing down, kind of helped by retaining this sense of how feminism and the media specifically have intersected rather than just feminism in general, for example. And so, yeah, that in a way helped us to form the the kind of thematic headings that we eventually came up with, which, as we said, were recognition, redefinition, reclamation, remapping and regeneration. Now, while the headings are loosely chronological in terms of the core stories that attach to them, obviously, um, we primarily wanted them to speak to processes that reflected the kind of way in which feminists had mobilised media at different moments. So, for example, in campaigns for gaining recognition and getting visibility, um, or as in the 70s and 80s moments where feminists had sort of reclaimed the tools of mass media to produce their own publications and often, in fact, critique um, what they saw as sort of patriarchal stereotyping that was going on in in mass media outlets so those headings reflect that intersection of feminism in the media but they also are were meant to be processes as I said because we wanted to gesture to the ongoing effects and indeed the the ongoing and unresolved effects of, of feminism in the media and the the ongoing need perhaps even for these kind of campaigns and their continuing resonances um rather than say having static headings like which are focused on particular media forms for example and we also sort of wanted to use those headings to um open up a sense of the very different ways in which feminism and the media had intersected so there isn't just a single way in which feminists have used media or in which the media has itself as an agent had an impact on the feminist movement we wanted to kind of show that there are lots of different than ongoing meetings of of these things so that's what the that's what the headings were sort of aimed to reflect and I suppose with all the reads as well as just being like so <laughs> be nicely alliterative I suppose you could say on one level it reflects it kind of speaks to A feminist um, media as a kind of form of resistance or of something that is responding to or critiquing some, you know, in, in some instances, like a perceived male dominated society or norms but it's also something as a process that's generative it's not just looking back it's not just conceived in the negative and so in in a very <laughs> loose sense I suppose the idea of having these process focused headings is also reflecting that kind
0: of double movement of feminism too. So once you had the themes how did you go about creating the exhibition digitally?
2: Well as I said there's before we were kind of trying you know playing around with attaching stories to different themes even physically with kind of like post-it notes and stuff (laughs) Um, and I also asked some of our you know both internal but also external colleagues like DM Withers and Ingrid Sharp for their you know to get their immediate take on different structures it was quite interesting as well as some unsuspecting uh, family and friends just to sort of see you know how people kind of felt or when you're very in something you kind of can't always see how it might immediately appear to other people so there was that um and then well I guess again it was sort of mixture of like practical and theoretical like um for every story there were kind of a range of different materials attached to them so some images or like reproduced images of archival materials sometimes we had um, some audio as well um, and those were all also in a big list um, You know, and I was trying to navigate getting different rights permissions for all of those and we were thinking about what would be most visually engaging what kind of might be produced in like juxtaposing different images for example and you know how we wanted the images and text to relate to each other and a lot of that sort of emerged in dialogue with Eight Arms who was the design and development agency we'd appointed to work with us on developing the website so they were kind of very helpful in suggesting things and you know also giving us a sense of what might practically be possible and reminding us to think about kind of making the site easily navigable for audiences and all of that kind of thing. So again, a mixture, kind of <laughs> bit of back and forth between like theoretical and practical concerns. Um, and in terms of the kind of theoretical side, I suppose, or, or both again. But one example was in terms of juxtapositions and how that might work. Was that we, in a story, for example, on um, transnational suffrage um, periodicals, um, we wanted to both draw attention to how you know sometimes creative and funny and, you know, smart. The, you know, many of the early materials, media materials produced by um, women in the suffrage movement in Britain and Germany were. So we, we showed that by, you know, including some reproduced images of suffragette periodicals and works by groups like the suffrage Italia, who were a kind of artist collective supporting the suffrage movement. But at the same time, you know, as we were saying in the kind of global context of the exhibition we were looking at, it was important to draw attention to how the media of the suffrage movement often, as, you know, many historians, including Antoinette Burton, for example, <laughs> isolatedly have pointed out how the suffragette movement um, often also kind of reinforced um, imperialist and and racist tropes to make its point. so um we kind of wanted to flag that in the copy but also in terms of the way that we presented the images we selected to to present on that page to make that point visually too so for example alongside on the transnational suffragette page for example alongside images from um, journals like the vote or Um, votes for women we also included an image for example of the suffragette when it was rebranded as britannia at the beginning of the first world war and it has this very kind of imperial looking figure on its cover which in a way visually serves as a reminder of um it's sort of some of the implication or the rather the way in which the suffragette movement was also kind of um involved in britain was also kind of often involved in furthering Britain's imperial and some sort of national aims, so, so that kind of visual juxtaposition was um, a way we, we tried to kind of show multiple sides of some of the materials we were presenting and that was also an issue when we came to um, draft the copy
1: Um, I think writing the copy was one of the parts of the exhibition that I found most um, fulfilling. As Maya has already said, you know, we're trying to create an exhibition that is not only telling feminist stories, but is also feminist in form. And of course, part of that was thinking, you know, just as Maya said, was thinking about the kind of power structures and privileges that feminists worked within and sometimes capitalized upon as a way to advance women's rights. And this is something we really um, thought about when we were writing the image descriptions, the the sort of the copy that went along uh, with the exhibition and I will, always remember one day where Maya and I spent the day discussing how to caption an image, you know, from this suffrage atelier. And it, um, on the top part of the, the postcard, it said all the things a woman can be but not vote. And it had a picture of a woman as a teacher, as a nurse, as a mother, you know, in all of these, you know, quote-unquote respectable positions and then below it showed all of the things that a man could be and yet still had the right to vote and then these images really relied on um, racist racialized classist ableist visions of what makes someone a um, productive a, a respectable citizen and it was really important for us in our description to point to that contradiction um, or not contradiction and this was exactly where we um we spent the day discussing an email was how do we how do we talk about that and i think one of the questions was if we should describe this as a contradiction but of course as Maya just said, it's not a contradiction because certain parts of feminism were built upon these privileges. And, you know, it was such a rewarding um, and I think fruitful experience for us to be able to have these discussions to actually think carefully about how do we tell this story in a way that points to the way these activists often were operating within and capitalizing upon these um, these power structures and privileges.
0: Last but not least, can you tell us what you enjoyed most about working on the exhibition?
2: Yeah, I mean, there were lots of things I enjoyed. Um, I enjoyed working with lots of people, um, both internally and outside the GHIL as we said it was you know in a way the exhibition is a product of lots of conversations and, and collaborations um and, and of lots of people's you know builds on lots of people's research and, and work and we tried to reflect that and that was that was nice you know that was interesting just to have those sort of quite energizing conversations with different people um but yeah I suppose there were lots of things but one of the things that I enjoyed was towards the, end of the um, time period actually when it was easier to travel. I was able to visit some archives in, in Berlin including the Audre Lord archive at the um, Freie Universität and they as well as a kind of collection of lots of photos and you know letters and writings as you correspondence as you'd expect they have recordings of a lot of the lectures and seminars that Lord gave to students in Berlin in in the 80s and yeah there was just something particularly for me as someone who's perhaps not a historian and doesn't spend my whole time in archives um there was just something very um again, kind of energising and moving about being able to listen to some of those lectures and seminars and, you know, to hear someone that I'd read work by actually speaking and interacting with students in a slightly different context from how I'd heard her before. You know, it was interesting to hear how she led those seminars um, and to kind of experience that sort of twin sense of tangibility and and distance that you get when you're listening to something in an archive and as well as the fact that of course everything you know love what she said was also something that was needless to say very kind of inspiring and for want of a better word and sort of resonant perhaps for the exhibition Um, and we include some of the audio in the exhibition including a And and including a quote of a moment where she says, it's through our poems as well as our dreams that we shape what has not yet been. Um, And that sense of kind of potentiality and of imaginary, the the kind of twinning of political action and feminist, the creation of a feminist imaginary was something I found, yeah, as I said, very resonant, very moving and was something that also we tried you know I mean at least uh, as much as it's is possible you know you tried to kind of evoke in a sense or to, to keep in mind um when making the exhibition and yeah I think I really loved the chance you know having the chance to do that
1: um that's a tough question to answer there were so many wonderful things about doing this exhibition I think firstly um for a lot of this project, you know, we were a very small research group. It was just myself and the director of the German Historical Institute, Christina von Hodenberg. So it was really wonderful to get Maya on board and have someone to, to collaborate closely with and also with you, Kim, too, um, our, you know, helping to promote the, the work that we're doing Um I would say also as, you know, in my role as the coordinator of the research group, it was really fulfilling to see Maya draw from the expertise of people that we had um, involved in the activities of the research group. So people like, as Maya's already mentioned, DM Withers, but also Sheba Chachi, Johanna Geermacher, Naama Kloman Iraqi, Um, We had Tiffany Florville. We had so many amazing people involved in our research project, you know, in the sort of academic side that we were able to then sort of um, bring into this exhibition, which was really wonderful to see, you know, actually a network and a research group grow out of the work we were doing. In terms of the actual exhibition, um, what I, you know, I often... In my own work on feminism, I think a lot about um, the media as sort of um, in in opposition to feminism. So the, you know, thinking about the sort of um, exploitation of women, um, the way it often mocks feminism or women's rights. So actually, I thought, what. I what I really appreciated in the exhibition was thinking about women as producers, not only in feminist counter medias, but also in in the mass media. So looking at some of the first women who worked at the BBC, looking at women journalists who are shaping the mass media and using it as an opportunity um to advance women in the media generally, but also to advance discussions of, of women and women's rights in, in mass media spaces. I think that was something that I really appreciated was sort of challenged me to question my own assumptions about, about the relationship between the media and feminism.
0: Great. Thank you so much to both of you for doing this interview with me. Thank you for listening to the German Historical Institute London podcast. Follow us on social media and check our website to keep up to date with new episodes.